Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So there are two readings this morning. Um, The first can be found on page 933 of the Church Bibles and comes from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. So page 933 of the Church Bibles. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. The second reading can be found on page 1027 of the Church Bibles and comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So page 1027 of the Church Bibles. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he too belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, Tom, thank you very much indeed for reading, and uh, may I add my welcome to that of uh, Chris's earlier in the service. It's uh, wonderful to see you here. Let me uh, encourage you to leave your Bibles open, and you might also like to find the green um, handout that was uh, uh, slotted in to the other things uh, that you were given on the way in, and I think you'll find that useful as we go through um, this passage, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as we look at that in the next few moments. And as we do, let me pray uh, for us now. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to what is, I guess, for most of us, if not all of us here, a relatively familiar passage of the Bible and the birth of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to understand it in perhaps a fresh way, uh, that we may understand clearly what you're speaking to us uh, about in it, and more than that, be ready to obey it and to live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
My guess is that we all have some stories of, of frustrating events that have happened at the most inconvenient times. It's a great dinner party thing. You know, what's the most inconvenient, frustrating thing that's happened to you ever? Like a puncture on the way to the airport. I mean, you know, a puncture is never a good thing, but when you've got a plane to catch, can you think of a more inconvenient time to get a flat tyre? Yet sometimes the most inconvenient events turn out to be the very things that save us. I think of those who missed... United Airline Flight 175. At the time, they were kicking themselves. They got caught in traffic and missed the plane. Except it was 9-11. What had been an inconvenient nuisance saved their lives. Now, let me tell you of another uh, story like that. It's back in the 19th century. A distinguished MP travelled to Scotland to give a speech. On the way, his carriage got stuck in mud. A young Scottish farm boy was passing with a, a couple of large horses and managed to get the carriage out of the mud and back on its journey. And the MP wanted to pay the young farmhand for his trouble, but the young man refused to take any money, saying he was just doing what any good citizen would do. The MP was impressed by the young man's attitude, and as he chatted to him, he asked him about what he hoped to do in the future. The young farmhand said he hoped to be a doctor, but he doubted it would ever happen, as his family didn't have money for, for his education. So the MP then promised to him, I'll help you become a doctor, I'll pay. And the MP kept his promise and helped to fund the young man's education. Now fast forward 50 years, another famous English statesman, Winston Churchill, is laying dangerously ill with pneumonia. Uh, some of you will know he recovered when his physician gave him an injection of what was then a new wonder drug, penicillin. Penicillin had recently been discovered by a brilliant medical doctor, Alexander Fleming. And here's the thing. Alexander Fleming was the young farmhand who had pulled the stranded carriage from the mud. And the MP who'd returned the favour by paying for Fleming's education was Winston Churchill's father, Sir Randolph Churchill. Who'd have ever believed that such an inconvenient event as a carriage getting caught in mud would turn out to be instrumental in saving Sir Randolph Churchill's son and arguably saving a nation. Well, look, in our Bible passage today, we have one of the greatest examples of something that seems so thoroughly inconvenient being the very means by which God brought about his great purposes to save not just a nation, but to save a people from all nations for all eternity. Here in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph have to travel 100 miles when Mary was pregnant and close to giving birth. They had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, perhaps on a donkey, although interestingly the Bible doesn't tell us their mode of transport. They might have walked. Anyway, they had to make the most uh, inconvenient journey just because a Roman emperor insisted that everyone register in their hometown. For Joseph and Mary, it could not have come at a more inconvenient time. But what must have seemed like the wrong place at the wrong time turned out to be the right place at the right time, which leads us to the first of our two headings uh, this morning, three headings, the right time. Look at Luke chapter, one and, uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the first point under this point, rooted in history. 
You see, if you want to turn back, you don't need to, but if you want to turn back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, you'll see chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke states that his gospel is the result of his careful investigation and gathering facts and reports from eyewitnesses. Luke opens his gospel by telling us that what is recorded here about Jesus Christ is precisely and accurately um, information that his readers can rely upon entirely. And we see that here in these first verses in chapter 2. The story of Jesus Christ is not least of all, and not least of all the details of his birth, are rooted in history. Um, Our twin girls, Susanna and Bethan, turned 18 last month. This week they received their A-level results, yet it only seems like yesterday that they were sitting on my knee, one on each knee, while I read them stories. Many of the stories I read to them were back then were fairy stories. And you know how fairy stories begin. Once upon a time in a land far away. Once at an unspecified time. In an unspecified location in a land far away. Not specified because it was just a fairy story. It didn't happen. It's make-believe. Now look how different this is. Not once upon a time, but at a specific time. Verse 1, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Verse 2, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. At a specific time, not in a land far away, but in a named location. Verse 4, Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem to be precise. You see, as we read Luke's Gospel, as we read the events of, of Jesus' birth, we are reading history. And Luke quite deliberately gives us historical markers so we can check it out. He does the same at the beginning of chapter 3. Flip over the page to chapter 3 and verse 1 with me, if you will. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now that is a mouthful. That is a difficult list of names, a Bible reader's nightmare, but it is an historian's delight. And it should be thrilling for us as we read it. Luke is not making this stuff up. Luke is giving us facts, historical facts, based around historical figures that give us confidence that what we read here is historically reliable and dependable. Now, this is rooted in history. Second, these events were overruled by God. Now, you see, as we read chapter 2 and the first few verses, it doesn't look as if God is overruling, but stay with me for a moment. The reason Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem was because, verse 1, Caesar Augustus issued a decree a decree that the entire Roman world should undergo a census. Most people I've read in preparation for this this week reckon that Caesar Augustus ordered that census so that no one could avoid paying taxes. So not only was this highly inconvenient for Joseph and Mary, and I guess thousands of other people alive at the time, not only was it inconvenient, but this would have seemed like a bureaucratic red tape from a dictator greedy to take money from the masses. And while paying taxes often meets with objection today in our democratic society, be sure that first century Jews hated it. They were being taxed by the occupying Roman force, taxed by the enemy to live in their own land, their own promised land, 
the land given to them by God. Everything about this seemed wrong, theologically, socially, financially wrong. Why should we pay taxes to the Romans? So here were Joseph and Mary and thousands of other Jewish citizens being thoroughly inconvenienced. This would have felt like the wrong thing at the wrong time. And yet, this decision by a pagan ruler was used by God to put Joseph and Mary in exactly the right place. Which leads us to our second point, the right place, verses 4 to 7. Now look, as I read these verses for us again, listen out for the two places that are mentioned here. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, did you notice the two places mentioned? Jesus was born first in Bethlehem, the town of David, and second in a manger, in an animal's feeding trough. And those two places, Bethlehem and the manger, are underlined for us as they are restated again and again in the verses that follow. So we're going to look at these next week, but just flip over the page to verse 11, and you'll see those two things mentioned again. Verse 11, the angels said to the shepherds, Today in the town of David a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. In the town of David... In a manger. And then look on to verse 15. When the angels had left the shepherds and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. You see, they went to the Bethlehem, the town of David, the baby was lying in a manger. Luke emphasizes it by mentioning it three times in in a few verses. God wanted Jesus to be born in both these places. And so he used what appeared to be a thoroughly inconvenient thing, the need to go and be registered to their hometown. And the Lord used a thoroughly unbelieving ruler, Caesar Augustus, probably driven by a thoroughly ungodly motive, the taxation of citizens. The Lord used all that so that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of David, and in a manger. And those two locations are crucial. First, it was crucial that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the town of David, to prove that he was the promised Messiah. You see, to have a claim to be the Messiah, you had to be a descendant of David, of great, the great King David of the Old Testament. The New Testament states this repeatedly. I've put two references for you uh, to chase it up. Uh, later, Romans chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. The New Testament states it again and again that he was descended from David. And the New Testament writers state it because it had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Perhaps most famously in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it was prophesied that one from David's line, a son of David, would be the eternal king of God's people who would establish God's everlasting kingdom. And not only was it prophesied that that would happen, but it was prophesied that the son of David would be born in Bethlehem, in the town of David. We heard that earlier 
in our first reading from Micah chapter 5. So do you see these most inconvenient circumstances that appear to be nothing more than the dictate of a pagan ruler were in fact part of God's chosen sovereign plan to have Joseph and Mary in exactly the right place when Jesus was born. It wasn't Mary or Joseph who arranged that Jesus be born where he was born, but the Lord. And so David Gooding writes these words uh, up on the screen. Divine providence so ordered things that it was the supreme organizing genius of the ancient world who arranged for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. J.C. Ryle makes the same point. God orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the hearts of kings whithersoever he will. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing. See the, the wonder of this. God so overruled that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the town of David. But secondly, as we've already seen, Luke tells us three times that Jesus was born in a manger. Again, the circumstances dictated that. End of verse 7, there was no room for them in the inn. We've read it so many times at Christmas. Why was there no room? Because the town was packed with people who didn't live there, but they had to go to register because of the decree of Caesar Augustus. You can be absolutely sure that Joseph and Mary wouldn't have planned to have Jesus uh, placed in a manger. No parent would choose that for their little one. But according to the angel, it was a sign, verse 12. It was a sign to the shepherds that this really was the promised son of David. And it was a sign to us of the type of saviour that the Christ is. See, this is crucial. Here was royalty. He was David's son, King David's son, great King David's greater son. He was going to rule an everlasting kingdom. Here was royalty laying in a feeding trough. What kind of God is this? Well, of course, it's to tell us he's the kind of saviour who is humble. The one who, yet rich beyond all splendour, would become so utterly poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is the saviour who would humble himself, not just by laying on a bed of straw, but dying on a cross who would become that poor that we might become rich. So then do you see how these apparently inconvenient circumstances were gloriously directed and manufactured by God for the salvation of the world? So that Jesus was born at the right time and in the right place, leaving us to end this morning by considering the right response. Over the page on the handout, the right response. And three things for us to consider as we wrap things up. How to rightly respond to uh, all that we've seen so far. Firstly, God is sovereign. Uh, You see, we've seen here that God rules and and overrules earthly rulers and their decrees. Even if their motives are wrong. Even if their motives are driven by money. Now, that should give us great assurance, reassurance in this uncertain, topsy-turvy world. This tells me that the Lord God, not the politicians, nor any government or ruler, but the Lord God is in control. He is overruling and bringing about his purposes, uh, his purpose of salvation for men and women in this world. Nothing can thwart God's salvation purposes. Uh, Doesn't that encourage you? God rules the hearts of kings and princes. 
God uses the decisions that our government and politicians all around the world make so that he can and does fashion events for the salvation of men and women. He even takes self-serving, greedy decisions and uses them for his purposes. Now that is a great encouragement to me as I look at the world. And it's a great encouragement to us to pray. To pray for our leaders. It's worth it. Uh, To pray about the decisions they make. To pray that whatever our leaders dictate, God would use and fashion to bring about his purposes. God is powerfully in control. So we don't need to be in despair when decisions that appear to be wrong and thoroughly inconvenient are made in Parliament. Of course, it's a great challenge for us. How much do we pray for our leaders? I was thrilled that Peter Collier did pray for our leaders this morning. I love the prayer in the communion service in the old Book of Common Prayer. In that prayer, we pray for the Queen and her government, and I quote, that they may be, it's on the screen, that they may be truly and impart, that they may truly and impartially minister justice to the punishment of wickedness and vice and to the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. Now it's old language, but you see the end of that prayer is a prayer that the decisions made by the government would help and not hinder the proclamation of the gospel in this land. It's a great way to pray. I wonder how many of us pray that way. This Bible passage should give us confidence to pray like that in the knowledge that God does do exactly that. So look, when we think of Brexit, and it is on the news most days at the moment, when we think of Brexit, when we worry about how our nation will be shaped by the Brexit decisions made in these following months, we can and should be praying that God would sovereignly overrule uh, all the decisions made, even decisions that appear to be driven by wrong motives. We can pray that God would use those decisions to help the spread of the gospel, the extension of his kingdom, and the salvation of men and women. He can do that. He will do that. Look, I'm going to stick my neck out. I don't mind telling you that it has always seemed to me to be a benefit to be in the European Union. This is not a political comment, but a theological, so stay with me. Why do I think that? Well, Christians in Britain have had freedom to travel and even work anywhere in Europe so that they can take the gospel there. Uh, Continental Europe is in desperate need of the gospel. Uh, Britain is uh, is a spiritual wasteland, but think of France and Spain and Italy, Belgium and Germany, Switzerland and Australia, uh, and and Austria, sorry. Well, Australia as well. (laughs) Yeah, you can make your mind up about Australia. These places are spiritually barren arguably spiritually poorer than Britain. With secularism or the false religion of state churches or the errant religion of the Roman Catholic Church dominating these countries, they need the gospel. So it's always been my thought that having an open door into the gospel is a helpful thing. But this Bible passage gives me great confidence that God can and will use the decisions of politicians for the salvation of men and women. And so when it comes to Brexit, I can pray with confidence to the sovereign Lord that he would bring about his purposes and use Brexit decisions in these next months for the salvation of people both here in Britain and in Europe. We can pray like that with confidence. God is sovereign. Secondly, uh, on the handout, Jesus Christ is king. Uh, Luke chapter 2 is here to assure us that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. He was born from the line of David as promised. 
He was born in the town of Bethlehem, the town of David, as promised, as predicted. He's not a pretender to the throne. He is the Christ, God's king in God's world. Now look, for many of us here, that will just confirm what we already know and believe. But don't lose the wonder and amazement of how these things were prophesied hundreds of years before they happened. And, don't, and be wowed by the way God fashioned events. How he got a heavily pregnant woman in exactly the right place at the right time. That sounds like quite a difficult thing to do. How he did it through a thoroughly pagan ruler, insisting on a financially driven decree. So that Christ was born in the town of David, all to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the king of the universe. Isn't that amazing? Are you amazed by that? I am. For those of us here who are not yet convinced of the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, may I say thank you so much for coming and being among us this morning. I don't know why you've come, but thank you for being here. Now let me ask you to consider what, what Luke is doing for us here, how he was giving us good, solid, historical and theological evidence for Jesus being the promised Messiah. Let me urge you to look into these events that are rooted in history that were prophesied in detail hundreds of years before they happened. Let me ask you to consider these events that have changed the course of history so that today, 2,000 years later, time is measured on this event. Here we are on this day, what is it? The 19th of August, 2018 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of, of, of our Lord. It's remarkable, isn't it? 2,000 years later and 2,000 miles away from these events, this day, today, is marked by that event. It's on every calendar, on every smartphone we own. This year is 2018, marked by the birth of Jesus Christ. That's how important these events are. So please let me urge you to look into these things. And to help you, I'd love to give you a book. It's a Christmas book. I, don't, I never expected when I wrote this to be giving Christmas books out in, um, in August. But there we are, as we're doing Christmas in the summer. Uh, it tells you more about why you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. And uh, please just uh, have one from me on the way out if you want to look into these things. Now, as we look into these things, as you look into these things, I'm asking you to consider how God is sovereign, that Jesus Christ is king, and thirdly, that the Saviour is humble. You see, we've seen, haven't we, that Luke emphasizes that Jesus is royalty, born of the line of David, great King David, from that line, great King David's greater son. Yet, Luke also tells us, emphasizes repeatedly that he was laid in a manger. We've seen it was a sign. It was a sign to the shepherds that Jesus was the Christ, as they announced. It's a sign to us of the kind of saviour he would be. That as I've already said, that he who was rich, who came from the, the splendor of heaven, that he became poor for us so that through his poverty we might become rich. Listen to these, great, these words from the great theologian Jim Packer. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis, but the phrase should be, in fact, carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at that first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. 
See what Pack is saying there. As we consider that Jesus was born in a manger, it tells us the lengths God went to to meet us and then to bring us to himself. Here is the mighty, all-powerful God who can control the events of the world, condescending himself. And he would go even lower than lying in a manger. He would eventually die on a Roman cross. What a God. He did that for you and me so that we might be saved and have all the riches of heaven one day. And so as Jim Packer says, Christians should reproduce this in their own lives. For the sake of the salvation of others, we should be ready to condescend ourselves. Be ready to live lives of hardship and difficulty and even poverty so that others may come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yet most of our lives are a desperate attempt to push ourselves up, to climb the social ladder. Most of our plans are about improving ourselves, trying to reach a middle-class social standing and a standard of living. The Christmas spirit is a readiness to lower ourselves, to be ready to humble ourselves so that others might know God. To be prepared to live amongst those who have nothing. To be ready to get our hands dirty. To be ready to move to an area where the gospel is needed. Even if it means moving down the social and housing ladder. To be ready to give money away. Even if it means going without so that others might know of Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. Friends, be amazed as you look at the Christ in the manger. This is our God. Be amazed at the God who is born into such poverty. This is a sign, a sign of the type of God he is. This is the Christ who would die on a Roman cross like a criminal, abandoned by his friends, forsaken by God to bring us salvation. What a God, what a saviour. Be amazed. Be thankful. And here's the challenge. Be like him. Let's pray together. From the squalor of a a borrowed stable, the king of heaven, now the friend of sinners, We thank you for the Christmas story that we know so well. We thank you that it tells us so much about who you are, our Lord and God. The one who is mighty and powerful. The one who is indeed able to fashion the events of the world to bring about your great purposes of salvation. But the God who doesn't do that from a distance, the one who's ready to get his hands dirty, more than that, who is ready to die on a cross. And so we praise you. We're amazed at your greatness and at your humility. And we pray, Lord and God, that we would not only rejoice in this gospel as we um, benefit from it, but that we would in part live it, also being ready to humble ourselves for the sake of the salvation of others. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord and for your praise and glory. Amen.